Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15 through till 23. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray this morning that our hearts would be open, would be receptive and attentive to your truth, Father. Would would your truth penetrate our hearts? and take its root deep down in our souls, Father. Would it be the food with which uh, we are nourished in life and in hope and in faith and in all things? God, would we be led by your spirit and overwhelmed by your grace this morning? We love you, and it's in your name we ask all these things. Amen. All right, you may have a seat. Have you ever been accused of having ulterior motives? Spouses oftentimes, at least my, my spouse, I don't know about yours, but my spouse oftentimes uh, knows me the best and it's her who usually reminds me when I have an ulterior motive, usually with that sharp elbow of hers. And uh, she reminds me when I'm doing something thoughtful or doing something to help someone else, but when in reality I'm helping them help me. That's what an ulterior motive is. It's when you uh, have a misguided or you have a hidden agenda in some sort of way, but usually it's a few layers down, and on the surface it looks like a kind deed, but deep down it's a misguided intention. And I think what we see is that when you look beneath the surface of all of our lives and and all of our actions and all the things that we do, when you look beneath the surface and you dig down and get beneath some of the layers of the surface and the facade we put on, we actually begin to see where our hope is, what what the reason we think are, are, or what rather what we're gonna put our hope in, what the reason of life, what the purpose of life really is what's the goal of all things and I think if you dig beneath the surface of anyone's actions and intentions you can really begin to see and they may not admit it but like my four-year-old son who always asks why followed by why followed by why you can usually get down to some sort of moral dilemma or some kind of questioning of your own existence (laughs) and you begin to see what the purpose of life is now I'd like to suggest also that the perceived value of that which you hope in depending on how valuable you think that thing is or what that thing is, that will determine the degree to which you place your hope in it. And what I mean by that is that if your hope is in sports or money, you're going to do everything you can based on how confident you are in that hope. And that'll guide your decisions and your actions. A friend of mine who I went to college with in, his, in our final semester, he got engaged to his uh, girlfriend and they were getting ready to be married. And um, he was... A relatively in shape guy he was pretty fit but he got on a fitness nutrition kick like I had never seen before and he started to eat almost nothing except protein shakes and he basically lived uh, in in the gym at the weight room and he just had his textbooks open on the treadmill and he was just 
doing his papers at the gym. And I think, I mean, we'll all agree, fitness is a good thing. Nutrition is a good thing. But I think his identity became wrapped up in that, so much so that once you peeled back the layers and had some honest conversations with this guy, you began to see that there were some insecurities in his own, in his own identity, what he thought of himself. And so his hope was actually in what he could turn himself into. And he wanted on his wedding night for his wife to be pleased with his body rather than uh, anything spiritual or anything deeper than that. He had some insecurities, and that's where his pla- his, he placed his hope. And you see this too sometimes on, uh, I'm not on Instagram, by the way, but uh, hopefully some of you are. But you begin to see on social media, this isn't the case for certainly not everybody, but oftentimes you see that other people's lives look way better than yours, don't they? Their kids scream less, and their houses are, are tidier, and they drive a nicer car, and they have a you know, freshly manicured house, and it's clean. And you begin, to, uh, you begin to sometimes envy those things. And while it's not always the case, oftentimes we can hide behind our, our facade, our trendy and hip lifestyles. And deep down, there's a desire to want to belong. Or our identity is wrapped up in what other people think of us, which of course depends on us portraying that image. My point is this, is that a misplaced hope takes captive your desires, actions, and your best intentions, and it makes you a slave to itself, And in exchange, the reward is something that will always be less than what's freely offered to you in Christ. I'll say that again. A misplaced hope takes captive your desires, your actions, and your best intentions. Makes you a slave to itself, and in exchange, it offers you a reward that will always be something less than what's freely offered to you in Christ. So let me ask you this this morning. As we get near Christmas, where is your hope placed? Or what, in what is your hope placed? Another way to ask it might be, where is your hope misplaced? Perhaps it's in your success, your financial security. Maybe it's in the success of your family, or maybe if you're retired, it's in the success of your kids or your grandkids, maybe even your great-grandkids. What is your hope in? And your image can be in what other people think about you. It can be your own piety, your own spirituality. But have you ever considered that the nativity scene, which we oftentimes take for granted, especially in the month of December, because we see it so often, have you ever considered that the nativity scene is actually a picture of a great and tremendous hope? And the last song we sang is just a wonderful reminder of that hope that we have. Here's what it says in verse 22 and 23 again of Colossians 1. He, which is, who is Jesus, has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So the gospel simply means good news, but according to Paul, there's more to it. There's some element of hope there. And so this morning, I want to suggest that that hope of the gospel is going to far supersede, far surpass any other hope that you might have. And so to do this, uh, I want to look at, study this passage And look at under uh, these headings. The first is two doctrines, two main key truths about Jesus. Then we'll look at two implications of those doctrines. So what does the Bible teach us? What are the two implications of what the Bible teaches us with, with regards to those? And then thirdly, what's one response? What do we do about it? How does it affect me? What's your response? So let's dig right in. If you're following along in your, uh, in your Bibles, we're in Colossians 1 and in the sermon notes, uh, you can follow along as well. A doctrine, by the way, is simply a, a pillar. It's a, 
It's a weight-bearing truth that you hold fast to. And so as a fellowship church, we have a statement of faith. And there's 13 articles in that statement of faith. And those are things that we hang on to, that unite us. That's our core beliefs. That's what a doctrine is. And so in this book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul, in the year about 62 AD, is writing to a church. It's a young church, primarily of recent Jewish converts to followers of Jesus. And what's happening is uh, we see that there's some false teachers who have kind of crept in. And they're giving wrong information and wrong doctrines about the person of Jesus. And so one of the things Paul tries to do in this letter, he tells us in chapter 2, is he's warning the Colossians to not be misled, to not be swept away by false doctrines or empty deceit, he says. Not to be carried away by human philosophy and understanding who Jesus is really matters. And so in a lot of ways, he's course correcting. Now there's some things, here's, here's why this matters so much. You might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Just some wrong ideas about Jesus. Well, it matters a lot, actually. There's some things in the Christian faith that we call open-handed issues, and those are things that are fun to debate and discuss, and we, we, we might not be completely sure on, or there can be two logical conclusions, and even two pastors in the same church may disagree on some open-handed issues. And that's okay, and you should seek in peace and in unity, you should seek the truth of the scriptures. But not everything in the Christian faith is up for debate. There's other doctrines that are 100% non-negotiable, closed-handed issues. That if they're not true, nothing else is. For example, the resurrection. Paul, the Apostle Paul later says, if the resurrection didn't happen, then let's go home. <laughs> Frankly, it's a waste. This, none of this is true if Jesus wasn't resurrected. Uh, the creation account, the fact that God created all things would be another one. Your understanding of the Trinity, how God functions as, as one in essence but three in persons is a core closed-handed doctrine. It's, it, it can't be disputed. If it's not true, nothing else can be. And so the doctrine of Christ and his, and his deity, or Christology in other words, is a closed-handed issue. This isn't something that can be disputed among the Christian church. So Paul seeks to make this clear, lest they be taken captive. So let's get into the first one, the divinity of Christ. Is what it says in verse 15. It says, he is the image, Christ again, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation, for by God all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. If you know the, the recount of the beginning in John chapter 1, this is an echo of that. There's some similarities between what Paul says here and what John says in John 1. The fact that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But what you need to know is that Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of God. He's the visible image, the visible, tangible flesh and skin and bones manifestation of God himself. In verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So not just part of God or little bits or, you know, the a portion of God was manifested in Christ. No, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Christ. Here's what it says in John 1, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word is Jesus. It was in the beginning with God, he became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. So another way to understand this is simply this, is that the full nature the full being, the full character, the full essence of God is represented to us, is embodied, is in a, in a human form through Jesus. So what's God like? 
What would he do? What would he look like? Well, look to Jesus because Jesus is God. He's no less than fully 100% God. This is what that word incarnation means, by the way. Simply means became flesh. We sing a song from time to time. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it marvelous that the God of the universe became one of us? This is what the incarnation is, is that Christ became one of us. He descended from heaven and became one of us. Now, there's a certain aspect to this that's a little bit of a mystery. And it's not that it's a secret or we can't know about it, but it's a mystery in the sense that we can't fully understand it. We can't wrap our heads around it. And Paul acknowledges this to the church in, in, uh, in Corinth. He says that this is folly to the Greeks and it's a stumbling block to the, to the Gentiles, to the uh, People who don't understand, it's, it's foolish. It doesn't make sense. Why would God ever do this? It's folly and it's a stumbling block, but a full demonstration of the wisdom of God to those who are called. So if you're not a believer, it doesn't make sense. But if you've been called, if the Lord has called you and made you his own, if you're a child of God, it's a demonstration of his wisdom and his sovereignty over all things, and we should just rejoice. <laughs> but it's a stumbling block. It's foolish any other way. So you might be wondering, well, why does it matter if Jesus is God or a human or a ghost? What's the big deal? Well, it is a big deal, and I'll tell you why. Because if Christ wasn't fully God, we'd have a bit of a problem. Why did Christ have to be fully God? Well, we need divine intervention. We've sinned against God, right, in the beginning. All of us are inherent sinners. We're disobedient. We're rebels to God, and we can't save ourselves by anything we can do teaches in uh, one of Paul's other letters that it's by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, not a result of work so that you can't boast. Only an infinite God, only an infinite and eternal God can save you from an infinite punishment or an infinite debt. So we need God to save us. Hence why Jesus had to be God. Anyone apart from God, anything or anyone less than being fully God would carry that image, that sinful curse, that legal standing of sin, that legal guilt. Paul also writes that in the book of 1 Timothy that there's only one God, there's only one mediator standing between us and God, God the Father, and that's Jesus. So Jesus stands between us, sinful and wretched as we are, stands between us and the king as our mediator. And you need a mediator who's pure and spotless and who's eternal and who's fully God. So Jesus has to be fully God. If he's not, our faith is in vain. We can all go home. But stay here, because he's fully God. Don't leave. But on the same hand, why did he have to be human? Why couldn't God just descend as a, as a ghost? You know, just descend and float around and be perfect. Well, here's why it matters, is because Christ is our, also our representative. Adam and Eve were the represent, representatives of all humans, all mankind. And we saw how that ended. They were representatives, and so because of their deceit their deception and their disobedience we've now inherited that legal guilt but Christ is our representative he stood in our place so as in Adam all die so in Christ we are made righteous so he has to be one of us in order to be a representative secondly he turns God's wrath into favor in order to be able to do that this word me is is called propitiation and he did that on behalf of us he, turns God, he turned God's wrath against us into favor. The writer of Hebrews says that Jesus is the same as us in every way. He, was, he got hungry, he got tired, he got thirsty, he was weak. 
And it says that he's like us in every way, tempted, though having never sinned. That's the difference, is that Christ never had sinned, but he was exposed to the same physical humanness as you and I, but never sinned. And he did that so that he could sympathize with us in our weakness. But further, and perhaps most exciting of all, is that Christ defeated death. He established a pattern in being being crucified, but also resurrected. He established a pattern in that we could too be resurrected from the dead as our representative. That's what it means that he's the firstborn from the dead. Christ is our representative. So there's books and all kinds of stuff on this. You could get your doctorate in this. So uh, if you're interested in more, maybe talk to Pastor Paul. (laughs) First doctrine is divinity of Christ. The second, equally important, non-negotiable, central closed-handed doctrine is the supremacy of Christ. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that, uh, from the old Disney film Pinocchio, I'd like to suggest to you that Geppetto is greater than Pinocchio, which maybe sound a little bit scandalous to you. But here's why. Here's why I think Geppetto is greater than Pinocchio is because Geppetto made Pinocchio. And the maker is always greater than the thing that's been made. The creation is subordinate. The creation is is accountable to the thing that's been created. And the same is true for anything you create. If you build a coffee table, that coffee table serves your purposes, your desires. So the thing created is is subordinate to its creator. And so if Christ indeed created all things, as it says in John chapter 1 and here in Colossians, if Christ was there in the beginning creating all things, then he'd be supreme, he'd be greater than all of creation. It says this in verse 16 of our text this morning, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him which you can also compare again, there's these overlaps with with the text in John chapter one, which says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. So it isn't that Jesus was the first thing God made. (laughs) Gotta make Jesus, can't forget about him. No, Jesus existed in the beginning with God and was the avenue, was the the means through which God created the heavens and the earth. So Jesus was not created. He didn't begin to exist when he was born, but he has always existed. In fact, Jesus himself says, before Abraham was, I am, which should sound familiar from Exodus. When Moses asks, who are you? God says, I am. Jesus says, I am. Before Abraham and Moses were, I am. So Christ is supreme, and and there's a word there, preeminent, and preeminent simply means highest in rank. It's the first of its kind, surpassing all others and without equivalent. So he's preeminent and supreme overall. He's the boss. Things were created by him and for him. So not only is he the agent through which God created the heavens and the earth, not only do we have him to thank, but Christ is actually not only, he's not, respons- not only responsible, but he's actually in control of all things. And so when you look at the world, there's not a single aspect, not a single event, circumstance, big or small, that Christ is not in control of. In Hebrews 1, chapter 3, it says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Now, I can't hardly train a dog by the word of my power. So Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father, upholds the universe not just the earth but the universe by the word 
of his power. Verse 17 and 18, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. If we lived in a monarchy, which we don't, but if we lived in a monarchy, we would have a king. And that king would make sure that he had a son for himself to be the heir, H-E-I-R, heir. To be the recipient, to be the, the one to receive all of the authority and all of the sovereignty and all of what is the king's becomes the firstborn sons. That's why Jacob and Esau fought about it with the birthright. Because the firstborn son has particular rights given to him. And so all authority and sovereignty over all creation is Christ. In fact, he's the head of the church. He's our head. He's why we're here. Notice it says firstborn from the dead. Jesus actually even is the boss over death itself. The grave couldn't hold him. Tomb didn't matter. They had a big rock and some Roman soldiers, which would probably keep any of us in if we did come back to life. <laughs> but not Christ. He conquered death. He redeemed us. He saved us. He's the firstborn from the dead and establishing us resurrection also. So there you go. Christ's divinity and Christ's supremacy. Now these are great and wonderful topics to discuss and to, to marvel at. But here... On the earth, on the ground, in your life and in my life, they also have two very prominent implications. And so I want to look at those with you. I'm the youngest of three kids, and my middle sister and I would fight all the time when we were kids. And we would fight about big things, small things, it didn't matter. We just our, our default setting was, was fight. And so my mom was kind of at, at a loss, at her wit's end. She didn't know what to do. And so she devised to, whenever there was a dispute, she would step in and intervene and split us up, and we would cool down. But then she would lock us in the bathroom together <laughs> in hopes that we would reconcile, that we would, you know, kiss and make up, as they say, that we would talk it through and forgive each other and recognize our part in the fight and apologize and wouldn't that be nice? And what, would, what her expectation was was that we would resolve our dispute, we would hug, and then as soon as we were able to hug each other, uh, we could go and life would carry on. And so that was, that was the goal. And what, what would happen more oftentimes than not is that my sister and I's anger would just burn hotly towards the other. And so in the bathroom, neither of us wanted to be there. Neither of us were interested in any way of reconciling. And so we would just always agree to smile, hug, show mom that we can hug, and then we would just go back. We would turn the boil down to a simmer, show mom, and then we would carry on. And oftentimes, uh, what was left from that one fight would just be fuel for the next fight. <laughs> But there was never any intentions of, of actually forgiving the wrong of your sibling. That's what sibling rivalry is, right? Why, why would you do that? You can just hang on to uh, your anger and you can get back at them later. That is what siblings are all about. But here's, here's the deal with reconciliation is reconciliation necessarily means that there's not only a forgiveness of the offense, but that there's a forgiveness of the record of the offense. And so to just simply forgive and forget well, it doesn't really work because we don't forget. We often hold on to things. And whether it's sibling rivalry or even in your place of work or in your family, we, forgiving is the easy part. But how about forgetting the record of the wrong and putting that behind you? This is, this is how the Bible describes us. I want to read, read a little bit of a recap of how the Bible describes our sinful condition since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell into deception and introduced sin into the world. We're described as being hostile towards God. And God got to a point where he gave us over, Psalm 81 says that he gave us over to our stubbornness and our sin. We weren't interested in the things of God, and so God eventually gave us over to our own ways. 
That's what it says of the nation of Israel. And sinners, you imagine someone digging their own grave. That's a picture of what a sinner does. An unrepentant sinner just keeps digging themselves a grave. And further to that, a sinner, unrepentant sinner, sets for themselves a table at the banqueting table uh, in hell. That's our sinful condition is that we, we, we bring this upon ourselves. We're hostile. In our text this morning, Paul uses the word alienated. We're estranged to God. This is great news though. I'm going to jump forward one chapter into Colossians chapter 2. And I want to share with you something that I've uh, recently rediscovered. And that not, God not only forgives us our, tres- our tr- uh, trespasses, our transgressions. God goes further than that. Let me show you. Verse 13 and 14 of Colossians 2. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. In other words, you're, you're not one of God's people living in the flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So not only did he wipe away the debt, but he wiped away the record of the debt. He puts it behind him. Not only are we forgiven, but the record is dealt with. It's taken care of. You can imagine if a prisoner, a criminal, has done something or at least been charged with a particular crime that is worthy of the death penalty. This prisoner would be on death row waiting weeks, days, maybe even hours before their execution. And apparently in prison on death row, you get to choose your last meal. So you can imagine this prisoner choosing their last meal and death is hours away, days away. The end is near. The final irreversible end of life is near. And you can imagine then if suddenly the guard came in, one of these prison guards, and handed them a stack of freshly laundered, nicely, neatly folded, a set of clothes for them, their own clothes from home, and says, your name has been wiped clear, you're free to go. Unhooks the shackles, lets them go, and opens up the side door, and off they go. They're free. Now, this is a little hard to wrap your mind around, because in our world, when convicts get let out of prison, they put it in a newspaper, and they say, hey, heads up, so-and-so is being released, and he's moving to your neighborhood, so watch out. But not only are we freed, but we're like the prisoner who's then freed, handed a new set of clothes, a new identity, and whose name is cleared, whose record of wrong has been cleared. Here's what it says in Romans, for as by one man's disobedience, that's Adam and Eve, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So just as Adam was your representative that introduced sin into the world and affected all of us, like an incurable disease or a cancer, Jesus has bought you back by his work on the cross. He's bought you back and reconciled you to himself by his death, nailing the record of your wrong to the cross in order, Paul says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So this transaction is a pretty good deal for you and I. He turns sinners in Adam into saints in Christ. So sinners become saints, which brings us to the second implication, the perseverance of the saints. So you meet Jesus, you've been forgiven, your record is is clean. Now what? What do you do now? Well, if you've ever been to uh, Mexico or a tropical nice holiday destination where North Americans go, uh, oftentimes in these markets they'll sell things like watches and sunglasses and things like that that are made to look like, say, Rolex or Oakley, right? And they're selling them to you for eight bucks, 10 bucks, which seems pretty good. And of course, they'll tell you it's real and it's genuine and it's authentic, but it doesn't take long for you to realize, you don't have to ask any questions, 
doesn't take very long to realize that that Rolex you got for eight bucks uh, wasn't genuine. I'm sorry. <laughs> and the way you know that is you just, you saw how long it lasted. That's how you test the genuineness of uh, $8 Rolex or a $10 pair of Oakleys, is you see how long it lasts. So let me ask you this. How can you test the genuineness of somebody's faith? Well, I think it's the same way. You see how long it lasts. Jesus says himself in the New Testament, it's, it's full of references to the fact that not everyone who claims to have saving faith in Jesus has a genuine saving faith in Jesus. It says in Matthew 7, to those who come to him, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. They say, well, come on, we did these miracles and we prayed in your name and we did all these great things. He says, depart from me, I never knew you. Not all who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Or how about the parable of the sower, where the sower goes out to sow and he throws seeds and, and all of it has different outcome. Some of it lands on great soil and it springs up and the roots go deep and it gets its nourishment and all that and it's great. But for others, it got choked out by the weeds or it sprang up on the rocks and got scorched by the hot sun. Or before it even had a chance to sprout and go deep, it got snatched by the birds. So the Bible's not shy to suggest that not everyone who says they have saving faith has indeed saving faith. And there's a few tests. Now, ultimately, I'm not the judge and you're not the judge of someone's salvation. But the Bible gives us a few indicators. What can we look for? How do we test the genuineness of someone's faith? We see things like works. We've just come through a series on James. We're coming through a series on James, rather, and James says that faith without works is dead. So if you're a Christian, you should demonstrate that by your works, by your actions. Or in Galatians, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And there's things you can look for that'll prove the genuineness of someone's faith. Or it says in John, uh, John 15, or John 13, rather, you'll, they'll know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. There's things you can look for. Further than that, one of the final tests you can do the litmus test is endurance. You see how long it lasts. How long does this faith last? Another way to put it is, as one uh, Christian writer writes, continuance is the test of reality. How long will it last? It's the litmus test of the genuineness of a person's faith. Paul to the Corinthians in, not, in chapter 9 says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So this was around the time there was another set of, um, not the, quite the Olympic Games, but there was another set of games that were probably second in, in, uh, you know, in popularity to the Olympic Games. And so Paul grabs this image of an athlete training. He says they go through all this work, and every athlete is as determined as the next guy to win. But only one will win, and even in that determination and training, only one receives the prize, and it's imperishable. Pardon me, it's perishable. It's a perishable wreath. It's a crown of twisted together olive branches. You can imagine how long one of those would last in that part of the world. A friend of mine a few years back called me up, and she said to me, uh, she said, hey, I have this big box of trophies. Do you want it? And I thought, that's a weird thing. Like, no. But uh, then she said, no, 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 like, you're a youth pastor, so surely you could use those. And the answer is yes, we can use almost anything you're trying to get rid of. That's just what we do. So she brings me this. I said, yeah, great. And she said, you can give away as prizes or, or whatever. Do a trophy night. And uh, so that's exactly what I did. I, I went and took them. And now we, 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 I've been using them to give them out as, almost as a joke. 
break off the baseball bat and slap over the, the, you know, the badge there and rock, paper, scissors, champion, you win, good job. But a big box of plastic dusted trophies I think is a great image for what Paul gets at here. When your hope is placed in something less than something eternal, when your hope is anywhere but your hope in Christ, it's the equivalent of a big banker's box of trophies. And the last stop before the dumpster was, was me. <laughs> so I appreciate that. But what a great image, though, for the race that we run. What kind of race are you running? Is the crown perishable or is it imperishable? And I want to suggest to you that God's children are the ones who not only persevere through trial and temptation and weakness, but God's children are the one who runs for an imperishable crown. And in the book of James, we know that trials are sure, all over the Bible, but particularly in the book of James, we know that trials are sure to come in life. Salvation in Jesus does not mean you get a ticket through life, an easy way through. God's not a lawn mowing God who just paves the way for ease and prosperity and comfort. But the book of James says that trials are sure, and in and verse 1, chapter 12, pardon me, verse 12, chapter 1, James says, Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial. For when they have stood the test, they will receive the crown of righteousness. Are you running for a crown of righteousness, or are you running for a crown that's perishable? See, followers of Jesus, God's children, the saints, are those who run for an eternal reward, which will be given to them by Christ, who greets them, well done, good and faithful servant. So finally, one response. We've looked at two doctrines, two implications of those doctrines. But lastly, one response. What do we do? What does this mean? So what trials are you facing? What, what race are you running? What's the hope? What's the goal? What's the crown? Is it perishable? Is it imperishable? How are you doing? If you're feeling blistered, burnt out, beaten up and ready to quit and you're running a race that's for, a perishable, for an imperishable crown. If you're running the race of faith, hang in there. Paul says that you'll be presented, you've been reconciled in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before the Father if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation. And Paul adds at the end there, for which I became a minister. So Paul gave up any other luxury, <laughs> any other freedom he could have otherwise had to preach the hope of this gospel. And so I want to promise you something, that if your hope is in anything less than eternal, that it won't come through for you. It'll end up in that banker's box with those plastic trophies in the storage room that we laugh at. And we make a mockery of. If your hope is anything less, in anything less than Christ, that's where it's headed. It will not come through. And if your hope is on anything that's on this side of eternity, the same is true. It's only hope in the gospel. It's only hope in the manger that leads to eternal life. And now the great part is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. Which means that it's not based on your form of how well you run or how much endurance you have. Because life will be difficult. Trials are sure doesn't depend on how well you run because the race has been run and won for you by Christ himself who's reconciled you by what he's done on the cross if as Paul says indeed you continue you cling you white knuckle the hope in the cross which is the only hope you have and it's the only hope 
worth hoping in. So this Christmas, this week, this month, this year, next year, let Christ be your hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you that our hope can be in you, that you've made a way for us to know you and to trust you and to be changed and to be reconciled by you. Lord, I pray that your word would continue to have its roots grow deep and that we wouldn't be any of the other soil types apart from the ones in which the seed takes its root and grows deep. Father, would we not be snatched up? Would the, would the truth of the gospel not be snatched up in our hearts? Would it not wither? Would it not be scorched? But Father, would it get what it needs by your Holy Spirit? And would we let you be our hope? Father, we love you and it's in your name I ask all these things. Amen.